Hello and welcome to Connected, the podcast about people, ideas, marketing, technology and everything that's good. I'm ASD, a digital man here at Mediacom. And I'm Sue Uniman, I'm Chief Strategy Officer at Mediacom here. And joining us in the room is Dave Trott. How are you doing, Dave? Yeah, good, good, yeah, great. I've got a description of you which I've taken from uh, Media Week, I think. So you're a creative director. You're also an author of Creative Mischief, um, Predatory Thinking and 1 plus 1 equals 3. Yeah. Um, you started your career at BMP and you founded another of other agencies, including Gold Greenlee's Trot, yep. Baines Fair Sharky Trot, yep. and Chick Smith Trot. Is yeah. there any, anything else I've missed? No. Yeah, no, we're good. They're the big bitch. <laughs> yeah. uh, the first question, um, you're well known as a writer and every, all the good work that you've done. What is your process for creative? And just, to, just to introduce the questions, Dave's come in and said um, some of these questions aren't, aren't particularly good, so I'm, I'm looking forward to which ones are good or not. Is this one of the bad ones? Well, what's your creative process? Yeah. Uh, for writing or for ads or for what? Uh, both. Because it's all very different. It's, it's, uh, uh, I'm, um, A, I went to, A, I'm working class, B, I went to art school. So that's mm-hmm. very different than all the middle class people that went to university. Yeah. We, uh, for us, it's, uh, it's a lot more mechanical. Sure. And all the kind of university planner type, airy fairy, um, ooh, touchy feely stuff. This is like, it's a job. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, especially at art school, it's a job. And you don't become so much of a fairy as you do when you leave university. Sure. You know? I don't mean sexual fairy, I mean just like theory fairy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Anything bar doing it the way the punters do. At, at, at university, their heroes tend to be all kind of loose, uh, you know late sort of a very people who inspiration strikes them at art school your heroes are all peasants and people that just pick up pick up a tool and get on with a job so our job is like that before we start work what we do is we go back and we find out what's wrong with the brief because the brief's always wrong <laughs> and because the bloke who gave it to us isn't creative sure the bloke who gave it to us has he hasn't learned advertising. He's got some degree from art school. Sorry, he's got some degree from university, probably sociology or a PPE or something like that. And it's nothing to do with advertising. It's nothing to do with selling. So he's given us a degree about some little sociological insight that he's read in a book about um, the latest trend of uh, behaviour economics or whatever the latest current thing is that he's read. And what we're going to have to do is now we're going to have to work out the answer is always in one or two places. It's either in the product or it's in the consumer. And we're going to have to go back and very simply work out what the answer is and how do we put those two things together. And we're going to have to keep it simple because the people that we're talking to didn't go to university, don't live in Shoreditch, don't have beards, and aren't, impressed, aren't, aren't interested in impressing their mates. So our working process will be much more blue-collar. That's can, really can you give us an example of what? Uh, a creative idea that didn't come from the brief? Uh, well, uh, the, where it all started was Bill Burnback. Now, if you take Bill Burnback, uh, one, uh, uh, one of the greatest campaigns ever was um, Levy's, Levy's Rye Bread yeah. in America. And um, <clears throat> if you look at that, the client came to Bill Burnback, didn't have planners, didn't exist. I was, I was at BMP when planners started. Mm. We used to do perfectly well without planners. Planners were just another way to charge clients more money. Mm. Yeah? And, and the account men in, in, you know, invented planners. Thompson's at the same time as BMP. 
Stephen King at Thompson's at the same time as Stanley Pollitt at BMP. But before then, we didn't have planners. And it would either be the account men or the writers who would use their brains to come up with a brilliant strategy, usually to get usually together. But So the guy from Levy's goes to Bill Burnback and he says, I need to sell my, my rye bread. And Bill Burnback says, well, let's have a look at it. And Bill Burnback says, it's packaged rye bread. And the guy said, yeah, I want to sell it in supermarkets. And Bill Burnback said, well, where are you advertising at the moment? And the guy said, well, where do you think? Jewish Chronicle, of course. And Burnback said, well, that's exactly what you're doing wrong. Mm. No Jew is going to buy this packaged rye bread. Any Jew is going to go to the bakers and buy fresh rye bread. And the guy said, well, where do I advertise it? He said, well, obviously you advertise it to people who are not buying rye bread and don't know about rye bread. So you advertise this on the subway with posters. And what you do is you get people who don't currently eat rye bread to eat rye bread. Now, so far, all that strategy is coming out. That's nothing to do with planners telling you anything about the consumer or where it comes from or anything like that. That's just burn back understanding the business problem. Yeah. Planners and briefs never get anywhere near the business problem. And what you have to go back is start with the business problem. Before you do all this sociology about who to, you know, and behavior economics and all that, all that. That's one of about 20 possibilities. Yeah. And, and so, Burnback says we're going to do posters in the underground to everybody who's never tried rye bread. And we're going to advertise this to grab the market for ourselves. We're going to change the name to Real Jewish Rye. And the client said, well, I don't even want to call it Real Jewish Rye because you know, it might be anti-Semitic. Mm. Burnback said, well, hey, man, it's rye bread. I don't think they're going to mistake you for high mm. Episcopalian. <laughs> yeah? So he changed the name to Real Jewish Rye. Now, if you just stop there... What they'd have then done was posters of people in crew cuts and blonde-haired wives and little girls with ponytails mm. all eating the rye bread, but they didn't stop there. Burnback says, OK, now we have to lift this. That's just the brief. That puts us in the ballpark. Now we've got to lift it so we kill everything around it. Mm. So when I got to New York, and I was only 19 when I got there, and I get off the subway truck and I see this poster, there's a little black kid eating a sandwich and it says, you don't have to be Jewish to love real Jewish rye. And I go around the corner and there's an Irish cop eating a sandwich and it says you don't have to be Jewish to love Jewish. And I go around the corner and there's a Red Indian eating a and it says you don't have to be Jewish to love And I think, this is fantastic. These guys are not trying to be wasp. They're actually celebrating the fact, what everybody else is trying to live down and pretend to be wasp. These guys are celebrating the fact that they're multicultural. And this was in 1967. You couldn't have had the I Love New York campaign without Burnback doing that. Now that's when you go back and you reinvent the brief rather than sit in your desk waiting for some university graduate to plop a bit of white paper on your table and answer that bit of white paper like it's an exam question. That's how it currently works and that's why nothing is creative because nobody involved is creative and they don't do the process creatively. You have to get upstream of what you've been given and question the question the way Burnback did. Fantastic. So I don't know if that answers you. No, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, I think... And as you know, members of my family think that you're one of the best writers there is. Well, um, thinkers maybe, but not writers. No, writers. Mark's a better writer. Well, that's, but, you know, yeah. I think he would say the same about you. Um, and in Predatory Thinking, you said words need room to breathe. And for anyone that's read Dave's work, there is lots of room to breathe. How has your writing style evolved? Well, I was never trained as a writer. I was a, a trained as an art director. I went to art school in New York. Mm. But I was a crap art director. And um, when I took my portfolio around after I graduated, took it up and down Madison Avenue, and everybody said to me, your ideas are great, but, you're, but your layouts are crap. 
and I tried out. I really wanted to be an art director. Yeah. But they all said, your ideas are great, but your layouts are crap. And I thought, well, what, why don't I just get an art director to make me look good? I can do ideas. Anyone can do ideas. I can write. I'm English. Anyone can write. <laughs> so, so you can write. You can do ideas. I'll do the easy bit, and I'll get a, a good art director to make me look good. Yeah. So that's what I did. And how I learned that writing style, who came up with that writing style? It wasn't, it, it wasn't a writer. It was a, an art director. It was a guy called Helmut Kron. If you read the early Volkswagen ads, yeah. how the art directors used to lay out copy was just blocks of grey type. Just They didn't even... It was Greek. Ipsum, Ipsum Corum, Lorum, or whatever. Yeah. Just blocks. And you cut it out and just uh, lay it down so it looked good. You wouldn't care what it was. So you'd have blocks. These blocks are squared up grey type. And Crohn looked at it and he thought, no one's going to read that because you don't want to read it. It's an impenetrable block. So Crohn started cutting gaps into it with his scalpel. And when he got it to look interesting with all these gaps cut into it, mm. he called Julian Koenig over and he said, look, can you rewrite the copy like that? And Koenig said, well, I can, but some of the sentences are only going to be one word long. And Crohn said, I don't care. That's what I want it to. People are going to get involved with it by look first and by words second. And that's the real big insight for me. What it is that makes you want to read an ad, ordinary punters, is the look of it before you read the words. Most people don't read body copy because it just looks impenetrable. But if it looks open and accessible, then, then you read it. And Elmore Leonard, who's one of the biggest selling writers ever, they once asked him what was the secret of great, great writing, and he said lots of white space on the page. And I do think that gives it an energy and an openness and... People that have been trained at university don't think like that. They just hear the words rather than see the words. But most people, people that read The Sun, art directors, blue-collar people, 60% of the country, we see it before we read it. Mm. Now, maybe The Guardian's different and The Telegraph mm. is different, but what do they sell between them? A million, if you're lucky, three-quarters of a million? Mm. The Sun and The Mirror, you're talking about six million mm. between them. So I think I'll go with the six million rather than the three-quarters of a million. I'll go with mass market, and the look of it is more important than the... Uh, first, we'll get you to want to read it by having it nice and open and easy and eerie, and then we'll worry about what it said. And, and as, as opposed to writing style, what I found always worked. What kills, what kills you when you're writing is to try to write as you go. You don't do that because you never move past your first sentence. You get to the end of the first sentence and you think, oh, that could be better if I said... Didn't you go to your... No, do a massive mind dump. Don't even think about it. Get everything out like a mind dump. Then go and have a cup of coffee. Then come back and now start editing. Hmm. Now start thinking, we don't need that, we don't need that. This could be rewritten as that. That bit's better there. And you'll have cut it down by about half. But it's two, it's two-stage process. The first stage process is just a mind dump. The second stage process is editing. What kills you is trying to write as you, ed- as, as you edit as you go. So those things together. Fascinating. What risks have you taken through your career to get you where you are today? Well, I don't know risks. I've failed upwards. Uh, It's totally true. I mean, all I've done is the course of least resistance. I've totally failed. I failed my 11 plus Hmm. because I was a dope. And I don't know if you you have 11 pluses nowadays. So they're not having them. Sats, are they? Sats. All right, well, I failed the 11 plus because I was a dope. So that means I got sent to a school where the most you can do is come out uh, if you're lucky as an apprentice, but usually most of my mates were labourers. Mm. My, my dad wanted me to take the 13 plus, so I took that and failed that as well. 
Then I applied for apprenticeships at Ford's, which was near me, and I failed every apprenticeship I could possibly apply for. I got one apprenticeship, but I hated it so much I asked Dad if I could go back and do some A-levels. And because my sister had been, I'd failed to get into a school that did A-levels, but my sister had been school captain, mm. so they let me into this school. And then I failed most of the A-levels except for English and Art. Then I went to art school, uh, well, art school, I went, did foundation at East End Tech. Which is about the worst <laughs> <laughs> possible art foundation you can do. And I failed to get into seven art schools in England. But my sister again got me a Rockefeller scholarship to go to New York. And then when I got back to England, uh, I came back because otherwise I would have, if after five years I would have been drafted, when my student visa was up, I would have been drafted for Vietnam. So I came back. Um, and then I applied to 50, 50 uh jobs in London that just I made up little portfolios and applied to the first 50 I didn't want to go around having interviews so I just applied to the first 50 names in the yellow pages and I only got two two offers out of that one was from Peter Mayle and one was from John Webster and I took the John Webster one because I got turned down by 48 other ones and John was great he was I didn't know it at the time but he was absolutely the best there was to learn from and the best writer and the best everything I stayed there for 10 years until John chose someone else to be creative director, and I didn't think the other guy was any good, so I had to leave. Yeah. And opened GGT. And I didn't ever think GGT was going to be anything, but I thought if my name was on the door, in six they'd have to print it in campaign, and in six months I'd be famous enough for that I could get a job as a creative director. And I picked Mike Gold as a partner because he had been David Abbott's partner. And I thought hopefully they'll think I'm in the same league as David Abbott. So Again, that, that I, I failed at failing, and it was succeeded. <laughs> yeah. And GGT was such a success, it was Agency of the Year, and uh, Adweek New York said it was the most creative agency in the world, and it was best 10 years of my life. But it's failure after failure after failure that ultimately, when you added them up, they, they all worked out okay. But uh, it's... Uh, so it's not... What was your question was about? Risks. It's just about risks you've Risk. taken, but what's the big... It's not about risks, they were just failures. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Um, books. Um, I give away your book quite a lot, actually. <laughs> um, which book do you give away as a gift to people? Ah, well, the ones I... I well, as you know from Georgie, one of my favourites is Bertrand Russell's uh, History of um, Western Philosophy. Yeah. Uh, I love that because it... It's not nearly as heavy as it sounds. You dip in and dip out little teeny weeny chapters and you follow it like a thread through. And I still haven't read half of it. I'm not, there's half of it in there I'm not interested in. But the bit I am interested in, Bertrand Russell writes like I would imagine university is. It feels like you sit down in a winged armchair in a wood-panelled room next to a crackling fire with a glass of sherry yeah. while the Don lectures you and you have a little conversation. It feels so civilised, the, the gentle way he explains these things, which I'd have thought were totally inaccessible. Descartes, Kant, Hume, Locke, uh, 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 Sartre. And at the end of that, I feel really, really intelligent, just for understanding what he's told me. And it's uh, what's great is it's opened it out into uh, not just media as media, not just media as bits of paper or space, but media as the human mind. Media, as those are just little ways to get into the human mind. The real media is the human mind. And what makes anything go viral is the human mind. 55 million little units in the country. So how do we understand the real media, which is the human mind? And 
So I think him also give away how to win friends and influence people a lot, Dale Carnegie. Mm, yeah. Another yeah. great book. Uh, those would be those would be the two main ones. Okay. Oh, and also uh, another great one, um, um, uh, Positioning the Battle for Your Mind by Recent Trout. Yeah, it's classic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. it's really simple. It's got right? everything in it. When you position yourself, you reposition everybody mm. else. Mm. Yeah, that. Those would be the main ones. Asking that this isn't scripted, but you, you say there about how the the mind is the the human mind is the media, yeah. and then but previously it was the how um, the planners and how they bring the sociology and the behavioural economics, and that's just one part of twenty in the, in the planning process. How do we balance that? Is it is it because they're not interested in advertising? They're they're interested in the human mind like psychiatrists. Like I've got you laid down on a sofa now. Let's understand you. That's not advertising. I've got to talk. You're, I've got five thousand people going down Oxford Street, and I've got to get one of them, and I've got to get him. I've got to make him in the middle of that noise on Oxford Street, make him listen mm-hmm. before we can do anything else. So it's not the psychology. Of, I don't need to understand your deeper wish to have a love with my brain. <laughs> what I need to understand is what entertains you, what excites you. How can I actually get you to want to see this and to want to pass it on to other people? Sure. Not silliness about let's make you have a love affair with this soap powder. That's, 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 there's, there's, I forget who said it, but if you don't remember the past, you're condemned to repeat it. Mm-hmm. That's all planners are doing. They're going back to the 1950s. People who don't remember Birnbach are, are repeating the world pre-Birnbach, which is the hidden persuaders, Vance Packard's the hidden persuaders, when people believed you could hypnotize and manipulate people. And Birnbach realized you can't hypnotize and manipulate people. You can charm people, you can enthrall people, you can... You can make use entertainment to get to 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 get you what you want and to get yourself passed on, and these people think they know more than Birnbach. You're not even you're, you're decades before Birnbach. You're you're doing advertising. You're doing a a slicker, more technological version of the thinking that was happening in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Just crappy old. Let's fill up a load of space. And so that's why I say the difference between really understanding the human mind and what those people are doing what those sociology graduates are doing. Sure. Okay. Um, on the Oxford Street point, mm. or in Soho, say we give you a billboard for a week where you can put any message on there, mm. what would you say? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know that a billboard would necessarily work like that. If you're <laughs> right. saying one message that so everybody needs to know, yeah. everybody's trying to get it right. Mm-hmm. The problem isn't to get it right. The problem is nobody's fucking listening. Yeah. You can get it right. The numbers are, for, at its best... 18.3 billion pounds spent every year on all forms of advertising and marketing in the UK. 4% remembered positively, 7% remembered negatively, 89% not noticed or remembered. Mm-hmm. Because all everybody's doing is sitting around having these sociology conversations about getting it right. And when you've got it right, so the client's happy. And when you've got it right, so everybody's ticked their little boxes, then you run it on the box and it's an invisible mood board. It's just an, or you run it in wherever slot you've found for this content, online or wherever you've found for this content and it's just another invisible mood board that nobody wants to see and people drum their fingers and wait until the four second pre-rolls over so they can carry on with what they actually want because your competition isn't under advertising your competition is everything else that's going on your competition is sitcoms your competition is the news your competition is the sun your competition is what else is there in their lives now if you understand that and how life works then you really do have a chance of cutting through and getting something that goes into life instead of just this little 
Shoreditch world of 15,000 people with beards give each other a little award at Cairns every year and believing and getting the uh, gun awards and that little tiny world. It's just a shame to see where advertising was between 1960 in, in America, between 1960 and 1990 were the golden years, and in England you'd say between 65 and 95 were the golden years, mm-hmm. when absolutely you'd hear people saying the ads are better than Talking the Talking about ads, yeah. 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 You know the last time you heard about it? Now, now people buy ad tech to ban the ads, to cut out the ads. And talking about the ads, but remembering what brand was attached to them, which is oh. the other, because when somebody yeah, does you, talk about you, it, you, you couldn't talk it, about it without passing yeah, it on. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I loved it. I got Maggie Thatcher once standing on the steps of number 10 when they were asking her if she was going to leave. She's saying, no, I shall go Ariston and on and on. And on. <laughs> oh, wow, we couldn't have bought that. No. Yeah. You know, and I had one of um, Howell Henry's ads. John Major recently was talking about one of his cabinet, and he said, we call him Ron Seal because he does exactly what it says yep. on the tin. You couldn't buy that. It's great. You couldn't thinking. buy it, yeah. yeah. Now, that's nothing to do with technology. That's to do with a great bit of thinking and understanding the human mind stuck in whatever form. You can run that in any slot, anywhere you buy. That's a great idea. But people, the worst thing now is creative departments have taken over. Creative departments think they're in the media department. And creative department think it's their job to be technology literate and to be to jump in the first te- the newest technology quickly. Because no, that's media's job. That's not your job. Your job is to do something that's going to knock anybody's balls off wherever they see it. And media will then do their job, which is finding amazing places to put it. But that's not the creative's job. That's really interesting. Um, this is this is this uh, this question actually is one of the ones that people ask us to ask people, isn't it? Yeah. Which is um, a lot of people are very interested in kind of taking a bit of control of their work days, I think, rather than just have, coming to work and have work happen to them. And that's where this question comes from. So habits, routines, processes that you've developed, which have helped you be the kind of professional man that you are. Well, the um, habit routine process I always had was... Uh, I don't care what you... The agreement I always have when anybody worked for me. I don't care what you do. I don't care if I never see you. What I want is a lot of work, high quality and on time. Now, within that, uh, I don't care if I never see you. I don't care what clothes you wear. I don't care what sex, what age, what race, what anything you are. But I also don't want to hear any excuses. You've got total freedom and that includes total responsibility. So I want a lot of work. I want it high quality and I want it on time. I don't care if you sit at your desk... I don't care if you go to a pub, I don't care. I, sometimes I used to ride the circle line round and round, mm. just looking at people, thinking, how do I persuade him to buy this? Yeah. Sometimes I used to go to the supermarket and stand by that gondola and thinking, how do I persuade her to stop there? Yeah. And whatever you've got to do, like an actor, what an actor has to do to get their head into the right position. Sometimes you might have to go to the movie, the movies and see yeah. it. Your job is to own coming up with an answer. How you get that answer is what you get paid for. Yeah. Your job, you don't get paid to sit at this desk, open plan, office, whatever it is, yeah. and just sit there from nine to five uh, with a beard and sandals looking trendy. That's not your job. We get paid by running the best ads. We're paying you to provide the best ads. If you can provide those, you get a raise. If you can't provide them, you get fired. That clarity was what worked for me, and I only ever hired people that loved that clarity, yeah. and all they ever wanted was a chance to do it their own way. People that believed they could do it great if they did it their own way. So I'd say, okay, here's a chance. But the downside, that's the upside, is you get a chance. The downside is if you can't do it your own way, you carry the can. 
So it's not like grown up to grown up, yeah? It's yeah. In, in transactional yeah. therapy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's adult to adult, yeah? Not child to parent. Very powerful. Yeah, really interesting. So we're on the, the penultimate question now. If I had to summon you as a genie, say I wanted the Dave Trot genie, this was the silly question, question. Yeah. Well, I can change it if you want. Although it's very popular. This is the most popular question. <laughs> what, are gonna, what are you going to learn with I It's interesting to hear what, you're, what you'd like. Well, all right. I mean, I'll answer it, but, you, but go, go ahead. See, I, I mean, my attitude for anything I read is there's always two criteria. Either I must be entertained by it or I yeah. must be learning from it. If I'm not getting either of those things out of it, why am I doing it? If I'm not being entertained yeah. and mm-hmm. I'm not learning, why am I doing it? So yeah, this yeah. was a question where I looked at it and I couldn't see any entertainment. I couldn't see any learning. I'll answer it, but I can't for the life of me see what you're going to get out of it. But go on. Fine. I've got another question to back up then. Um, right. If you had to, Try. If we had to summon you as a genie, what five commonly available objects would I have to put in it to find you? So this what are the five that define you? This is a touchy-feely Shoreditch plan. It's a touchy, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see your, grow, be, your beard yeah, growing yeah, as, we, uh, yeah. as we talk. Uh, I don't know. My attitude to this is... Um, what five objects to summon me? Yeah. yeah so what are five objects so to summon so, you? So if we were calling you? Huh? <laughs> so I might have Jaffa Cakes, Spurs Ticket, Running Shoes, whatever. What are the five objects that define you? Discovery Channel. Um, okay. Pint of beer. Um, no, I'm struggling. Uh, I love this image of a pint of beer with the Discovery Channel <laughs> what beer would it be? well at the moment it's uh, in cans it's uh, Murphy's Draft right which I've found much is actually better than Guinness Draft great I was talking to the um, got a little supermarket around the corner from me I was talking to him the other night he likes to drink as well and he was recommending this Nigerian Guinness that he imports and I tried it it's right. really strong but I don't like it right. it's too thick for me so Murphy's Draft Murphy's Draft at the minute but um, also, there's a really good thing uh, uh, found in Waitrose is uh, uh, when I would, you know, I usually get dragged around with a wife, and like most blokes, I stand in the alcohol counter while the wife goes around <laughs> doing the shopping. And they've got this um, um, iced tea, alcoholic iced tea. Yeah. That's really good. That's really great. There you go. Uh, and beer, in, in, if you go into a pub, Doomba. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Drive, I know what you mean. I like a lot. Yeah. Uh, but it has to be flat, not gassy for sure. me. And um, I prefer bitter, ideally. And usually over 5% if I can. Sure. I don't okay. want to you know, drink water. I want to feel it if we're going to yeah. be in a child of the 60s. I, mean, <laughs> yeah. I want to feel it. Uh, other things? Uh, t- in 20 years ago, I would have said the sun, but the sun's gone very crappy since um, they started hacking people's phones and getting a conscience and taking things seriously. Now they're just dull. Um, I think if you look between, look at the difference between the sun and the news of the world. You see the, the way to do it and the way not to do it. Right. The news of the world is really crappy and dull, mm-hmm. and the sun was really fun. Yeah. And we used to have a wall in the creative department where you'd, 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 people would pin up the best sun headlines. Mm. They, were, they were they were just great, you know. Yeah. When um, um, Tammy Wynette died, the country singer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they had a sign said uh, "Country Star Tammy," D E C E A S E D. There's that famous one, um, Caledonian Thistle. Oh, beating Celtic. Super Cali Go Ballistic Celtic are atrocious. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic yeah. line. Yeah. And, and Ray ruined a politician's career when um, they caught Paddy Ashdown uh, oh, knocking off his secretary. Yeah. He just said Paddy Poundstown. That, that, was, that was it. It was over. I'd, 
I, I just thought, when you look at that writing and you think, wow, we want to write like yeah. that. Yeah. So some old, old editorial based yeah. sons. So now, the nearest I've seen was uh, the Metro now is nearer than the Sun. It's the nearest thing. Uh, the other day after that riot at Upton Park, West Ham's last game, yeah, yeah. Tuesday, it said, Tuesday. I'm forever throwing bottles. That's the line to be proud of. I love yeah. that. Sometimes in, sometimes in uh, the Metro. Uh, but what else would you say that's... Um, I don't know, I think that's... Uh, Just three. I think we're good. Mm. Okay. This might annoy you as well. This is specific objects and mm. your whole family is safe. Mm. So that's all. But it's a house fire. What three things would you grab? You well, the thing I read that this morning, I was thinking, and I thought, there isn't, because when you go on holiday, what you, what you, you go on holiday, and for two weeks you don't miss anything. Okay. What do you do? You take socks, pants, T-shirt, jeans. Yeah. And you don't miss all that stuff you've got stored up at home. All your precious things that you couldn't possibly live without, you know, you go and hold it with a suitcase, and that's what's in it, and you get by, you get by with that. And I don't think there's anything that you'd uh, that you'd grab and run out, and you couldn't live without, you know. But but you've got things that you know, gifts, fond memories, art. Well, no, not especially like you said, your family's safe. It's it's uh, the rest is just photographs. It's it's. Uh, no, not really. Okay, nothing. Okay. Um, before we go we on to these... More. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, I'm yeah. really interested. The, you, you, there's a very clear message about working class backgrounds. And, um, is, do you think your success has come down to your the weight of your identity in the, the working class background and that almost as a point of difference or the idea of simplicity and authenticity which is also coming through loud and clear? I think it's the same thing and I think what turned my life around was going to New York yeah. when I was 19. I'd grown up in East London, and what you what what, what we kind of grew up to learn, because everyone on the BBC spoke with a correct BBC accent, yeah, and um, they were all terribly posh. And if you wanted a white collar job where you wore a suit and a tie, you had to speak correctly. And oh, we didn't. And I tried changing my accent, and I couldn't. No. And the way I grew up, we it, we we even talked slang, and we didn't know it was slang. We talked Yiddish, we didn't know it was Yiddish. It was all just East London. And I was embarrassed to death about that, so I got to New York. And when I got to New York, uh, everybody listened to what I said instead of the accent I said it in. Mm. It was the first time it ever happened to me. Mm. And not only that, in New York, what I loved is they were proud of not being wasps. They were pr- they, they looked at the rest of America as dull and boring white bread. And what we are, we're Jews, we're Italians, we're Irish, we're Puerto Ricans, and we've all got our own thing that, do you know about monsters? No, you don't know about monsters. Do you know about uh, clock kids or whatever it is? No, you don't know about that. You know, and, I, and I'm feeling really like out of it because I don't know about what it is. And I thought, if ever I get back to London, I'm going to be proud of what made me different instead of being embarrassed about what made me different. Do you think London's changed? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When I came back, there were guys like Alan Parker and David Bailey yeah. already started doing that. And uh, I think it's fantastic. You could actually be, be I mean, nowadays people won't. It, well, it's not on the radar that you'd be that you'd be embarrassed about being Cockney. But when I grew up, every other accent from all over England was a regional accent, and you weren't embarrassed about a Yorkshire accent or a Liverpool accent because they just said where you were from. But a Cockney accent said what class you were, yeah. and it said you were thick. Because yeah. everybody media always put you as Del Boy yeah. or, mm. or or Step Yeah. You were poor and you were thick if you had a Cockney accent. So please don't try and participate. You know, when I wanted to go to art school, my dad said to me, that's not for the likes of us. Yeah. 
we don't do that. And it, it was and it wasn't until I got to New York, and then I found there are Italians in New York, and they and they do listen to opera, and they're, they're working class. They don't care. They paint pictures. They listen to opera, and especially at art school. All your heroes are idolised peasants anyway. They go and live with peasants, mm. and this is fantastic. What we do is, and what Birnbach taught everybody to do was to take the negative and turn it into a positive, yeah. wherever you get it. And I brought that back, and and so it, it plugged in. And it in. stood out. That's the point, isn't oh, it? Oh yeah, it, it, plugged it, into, it, it plugged into the street smarts that I'd already mm. learned in the yeah. East End. And the street smarts that I'd also learned in Brooklyn. And you put that in and you actually suddenly saw you actually had an advantage over middle class kids because they never learned street smarts. Mm. When street smarts was another word for creativity. Mm. Another word for entrepreneurialism. Mm. Which you'd never spotted before. And so now you'd actually look at people like David Cameron and you'd think, what a wally. What a plank. He couldn't survive in East London. Yeah? Mm. And And... You'd look down your noses at people like that, whereas previously you'd be t- tugging your forelock just because mm. he was posh. Yeah. And, you know, like that guy who shouted plebs to the policeman and in the number 10. Yeah. You know, you... you, you, you... Nowadays, you, you, that just means he's thick. Mm. So, you... you and, and so, that, if I had just stayed in East London and not gone to New York, then I would be teaching art at some third-rate art school somewhere. Sure. Um, New York was what turned me around and made me rethink absolutely everything. And New York was what said, uh, and, and Birnbach and the whole New York. And, and then, <coughs> don't forget, nobody from art school would touch advertising with a barge pole before Birnbach. Yeah. Before advertising was just what you saw on Mad Men. Waspy schmucks in suits who weren't good enough to do anything else, so they went to work in advertising. And they did that thick kind of Vance Packard, uh, hidden persuaders stuff, which planners are doing now, believing you can uh, manipulate people and hypnotise people by manipulating the feelings they don't even know they've got. Mm. And and uh, Birnbach was the first guy who said, no, people have got brains, people like fun. It's a counterculture thing. We can have fun with this. What's a Volkswagen? It's a small car. Okay. What are the, well, instead of being embarrassed about being a small car, what are the disadvantages of a big car? Mm. Let's turn that on its head. Avis is only number two. Instead of being embarrassed about that, where does that put number one as a fat cat? Levis is Jewish. Instead of being embarrassed about that, how does that reposition all the wasps? You know? But you're also talking, we were just talking about it actually before you arrived, about um, going somewhere where everything that you were was accepted. And we were talking about how that really is a powerful culture to create at work. And I guess that's what you were saying about treating the people that work for you as grown-ups as well. But that idea that you didn't have to edit yourself to get on in New York. Yeah, I mean, there was also a thing, it's very unfashionable now, but there was a thing that was quite big at the time in New York was Anne Rand. Yeah. Very unfashionable now, but what was powerful was Anne Rand is, if you want freedom, you got freedom. And as Sartre said, you're condemned to be free. You don't really, you, you say you want freedom. Yeah. No, what you mean is you want freedom with a safety net. Yeah. Okay, well, no, here's freedom with no safety net. Yeah. If you really want freedom. And I love that. I found that so exhilarating. Yeah. And so when I would hire people, it's not, here's a safe space. Here's all I would do. The, 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 it's like Alex Ferguson. The trick is, the trick is not getting the team to play. The, the trick is hiring people that play the way you want them to play. And so the trick was hiring people that 
were desperate for a chance to do it and realise they're working for themselves, not for me. Mm. And all I'll do is I'll give you a chance. Now, if you can do it, well and good, but if you can't, well, then you're out. If you like that, if that's what you want, then you're exactly what I want. So, so, so the people that would always work for me, they were Geordies, Scousers, uh, Manx, Yorkshiremen, not usually Londoners, tough Northerners, who were actually, who, who, who wouldn't want to be mollycoddled. Yeah. Londoners, as soon as it got a little bit tough, they'd run away. They couldn't, there's too much other stuff to do, we don't need this. But those other guys don't want to be sent back up north, down the pits. <laughs> you know? Yeah. The, uh, they're scared stiff, so they are going to make yeah. it way bloody hell. This is going to, I'm probably going to make it work. And, and it really did, and it, it would work, it would work great with those guys. And, and I found that the department worked much better, men and women. Although, having said that, uh, two of the best writers, well, one of the best art directors was a woman, but two of the best writers uh, were both university graduates, which is unusual. One was a bloke, one was a woman. And uh, they were, the, I think, the only university graduates I had in the department. And normally, um, and one of them went on to be a creative director at Abbott Mead, and one of them went on to open his own agency, which was voted agency of the decade. That was university graduates. And he kept it secret from me that he'd been to university <laughs> yeah. when he got hired, because he didn't think he'd get hired. Yeah, we're very open. We have no forms of prejudice here. No, you can have a degree all. or not have a degree. Yeah, you can ask the uh, surprise so question. I'm worried that you're going to hate it now. So these were written by a university graduate, and um, these are 100 questions which are for careers, but I've edited them slightly, so there are questions that you will, I think you'll be all right with. So if you read one of them and then answer it. This is from the, this is the Alan de Botton from the these School from, of Life. Yeah, these when are When I questions. was a child and thought about the future, I wanted to be. There That's the question. Yeah. yeah. Policeman. There you go. Fantastic. Because my dad was a policeman. Yeah. And all my family were sergeants. A lot of a lot of how I was brought up is coloured by that. My family were all sergeants, either Marines, my Uncle Billy, my Uncle Reg, my Uncle Ginger were all Marine sergeants. My Uncle Harry was a sergeant in the army. My dad, my cousin Tommy, my Uncle Tom were all police sergeants. So sergeants has been a lot of my upbringing. And um, so uh, the uh, I used to have a sign on behind my desk at the office, which was Napoleon. Napoleon said generals don't win wars, sergeants win wars. Mm. And that's it. Generals sit in a, in a... They're like white collar. They sit there and they make a pronouncement and wait for someone else to do the work. Mm. Sergeants have got to have, make 30 tough guys do it. Mm. They're like Scottish football managers, sergeants. And you can only do it because you've done it yourself. And if they don't do it, you'll do it. Mm. Right? And you've, you've got to be able to have the respect of those guys and you've got to be able to do it. And, and, make, and those guys... We'll either do it or you'll do it. So, definitely a sergeant. And I always thought it'd be a policeman just because the family was all police. Sure. Uh, but you would have been you would have been terrible policeman. Probably, yeah. Yeah. You don't like rules. Huh? You don't like rules. Nah. <laughs> but then my dad, but then my dad, see, brought me up. Dad's version of being a policeman. Don't forget, this is the East London policeman. Yeah. And I asked dad, and dad always said, the rule is the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. So I yeah. said, how does that work then? And he said, well, you think about it, question it. What's the purpose of the law? Mm. The purpose isn't just to lock people up for no reason. Mm. The purpose is to structure society. So, for instance, he said, if I find a bloke's broken into a baker's and I ask him what he's doing and he's broken in to feed his fair wife and kids, I give him a few loaves of bread and turn a blind eye. Because mm. that's what he's, he should be doing. A man should be looking after his family. But if he's broken into the bakers to steal the money out of the cash register, I'm going to lock him up. Because mm. it's my job to keep society together. 
So you question what you're doing, and you really, within understanding the bigger rules, you make, and that's kind of what I do in advertising, understand, not just get a piece of paper from a planner, and I'm thinking that that would be the letter of the law. The spirit of the law is get beyond that and work out what we should be doing and why. And how do we get attention in the first place? Yeah. Yeah? That's fantastic. Um, you can follow Dave at Dave Trot on Twitter. You're a very good tweeter. You're very regular. Is, that, is it just become a habit now? Yeah, I don't... I, <coughs> see, it's funny. This Twitter thing was... Uh, was Originally, uh, we, 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 uh, someone said, you need to write a blog because we need someone to get people to come to the agency website. Yeah. So I said, well, I don't see what, no, who's going to want to read what I've got to write? I couldn't see anything that people were going to read. And they said, we'll do it, and we'll worry about it later. So I started writing the blog, and, and I thought, well, no one's coming to it. How do I get people to do it? And I thought, well, Twitter, that's kind of like classified ads, isn't it? Yeah. You do yeah. little ads there. Yeah. And how does advertising work? Nobody will read you unless you're funny. If you want people to buy your product, get mm -hmm. to you as far as your strap line, you've got to have some entertainment in there. So I thought, okay, well, I'll do two or three funny tweets to every hard sell tweet. And that's then, and it's just like ads. And I, meanwhile, I'd had this other guy who was a supposed social media expert telling me, oh, no, you've got to follow other people back if they follow you, and you've got to have a blog role, and you've got to have a blah, 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 giving me all this. I thought, no, that's not, you don't need to know all the rules of Twitter. You need to know the rules of how people are. And how people are is if you're fun, they'll follow you. And they'll, they'll allow you occasionally to slide in a, a plug. Yeah. You know, why wouldn't you? And so that's all you do. You do it. You don't do it by the rules of Twitter. You don't do it by the rules of blogging. You do it by the rules of how people work and what people want. And you already knew that yourself. You don't have to go and ask other people to tell you that. You possess a person, you walk around in it all day. Hmm. You, can, you can look inside it and see what it likes. You know? Yeah. You've got your friends, you've got your wife, you've got your, your kids got your mum and dad how do they work when, when you go to a supermarket why do you buy something instead of something else you don't need experts to tell you this stuff you are it yeah and so that's all I would do and I, I don't know the first thing my son still has to help me on the tech I'm not interested couldn't care less about the technology my son will do that for me this is just uh, a means to an end you know it used to be a quill pen then it was a typewriter then it was a, a laptop now it's social media Pretty soon it will be whatever it's going to be pretty soon. But it will always be, because the end point is from one human being to another, it will always be what they want on the other end of it. And what that will always be is what's funny and what's amusing and what you like to pick up. That's why, what's the numbers? Every, every minute six hours of YouTube goes up and five hours, 59 minutes of it disappears. One minute survives because it's good. So what you've got to do is make yourself good. The technology will take care of itself. There's other people who do that. Mm. You've got technicians for that. What you've got to do is be good. But the creative part of you, why you were given a brain, was to be creative, and that's to get upstream and help think other people and be good. And you don't need to learn technology and buzzword and heuristics and big data and stuff computers can do. They'll yeah. do that. We've got computers for that. What you need to learn is how to outthink other people. You know? And that's a fantastic place to end. Um, Dave Trott, thank you very much for being in the studio. Uh, it's been brilliant. You can edit out all the bits you don't. You don't. <laughs> no, we go out raw. Uh, so thank you very much. Oh, okay, Doug. All right. Thank you.